taking existing spectrum that's using legacy systems and being able to reallocate that or refarm that for these newer technologies is, is always an interest. On this episode of Embedded Insiders, Brandon and Rich are addressing the increasingly political aspect of the semiconductor supply chain issues running rampant across the globe and the danger of those issues reaching all the way up to the semiconductor manufacturing equipment itself. Next, Associate Editor Tierra Oliver is joined by Pat Wilbur, Hologram CTO and co-founder, to talk about the retirement of 3G networks by some of the U.S.'s largest wireless carriers. This transition is also known as the 3G sunset. Finally, Assistant Editor Taryn Ingmark will be providing a breakdown of three must-know secure IT technologies to fill out a good Industry 4.0 ready toolbox. Hello and welcome to the Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass, who's Executive Vice President and Brand Director of Embedded Computing Design. How are you doing, Rich? Uh, I'm doing really good. I actually had a few days off this week, so where we did nothing, which is good. You know, as you know, the downside, you come back to an inbox that it's overflowing, but it was worth it. I had some nice nothing time. Nothing? You're not a nothing kind of guy. Well, nothing to me is different than most people. Uh, there was there was probably a lot of something, but it was it was nice to... So I didn't even bring my computer, which is a rarity. Whoa, that is, you're going into dangerous waters there. That's right. That's right. Well, you, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, so I actually had an interesting meeting um, earlier this week as some I'm of you. I'm glad you filled your week with one interesting meeting. Yes, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a very long meeting. <laughs> the, um. As most of you know, I'm uh, based in Phoenix, and Phoenix, yeah, has a pretty strong tech sector, um, but it's getting even stronger, and a lot of uh, big companies are coming here. Apple is building a facility here. Um, Amazon has a couple of big facilities here, and notably, TSMC is building one here. Um, so there's a lot of excitement and interest going on around that now. I did not meet with anybody from TSMC. I actually met with some people from Microchip. And we got to talking, you know, how do you think that's going to affect the, you know, the tech market here in the Valley, um, on and on and on. And something very interesting came up, which was that they said, of course, you know, you, know, you got to take some of this with a grain of salt. The microchip doesn't do things on super duper advanced process nodes or anything. But they pointed out, you know, this is... A potential scary thing in the midst of a supply chain uh, semiconductor shortage, which is right now there's a whole bunch of emphasis at places like TSMC and others on these super duper advanced process nodes. Um, but the reality is that the vast, 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 vast majority of of semiconductors, of silicon based, you know, semiconductors are done on processes that are greater in, in most cases much greater than 10, 10 nanometers. However, you know, some of these biggest, the biggest fabs in the world are focusing on those well low nodes. So I think it seems remember like the timeline to build a fab. I mean, you're, you're looking at least two years out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But even still within two years, you know, I'm assuming that 
I don't know this, but I'm assuming that TSMC, what they're doing at their facilities is building out for what they believe will, they will be, you know, they will have the, the, the demand for in two years. But TSMC is also allocating tons of its uh, capacity towards these more advanced nodes. And especially right now, when we're in this semiconductor shortage type, you know, environment, um, I don't know if 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 that's if that's necessarily the best thing for industry. Obviously, there are reasons that TSMC wants to do it. Right. Uh, if you're TSMC, you don't care what's the best thing for industry. You care what's the best thing for TSMC. Right. But the scary thing for industry as a whole is that. Do you remember when this whole thing started with this shortage? And this is, and I'm not talking about COVID. It's before that with the MLCC capacitors. Mm-hmm. Yep. The same sort of thing happened there, right? Where all of the margin had gotten stripped out of these capacitors. So what the capacitor manufacturers started doing was allocating a portion of their capacity towards these newer, more advanced technologies. And that what that meant was that everybody who'd been relying on and designing with, you know, their the tried and true, all of a sudden we have a shortage, right? Yep. And, so, and so it seems like this could potentially be heading down a similar path. It's always a pendulum, you know, it swings back and forth between oversupply and undersupply. And, but at the, at the end of the day, these guys are going to produce the things with the highest margin. Yeah. Um, yep. They, they certainly are. But, um, you know, right now that is, you know, you got to be very careful about that because one of the things that came up when we when I was talking to microchip is, you know, the, Supply chain issues are getting to the point where, and of course, these are fewer and fewer of these sectors you're going to hear about in the press because they're until it becomes a problem. But it's starting to potentially get to the point where it could be impacting the semiconductor manufacturing equipment itself, right? And of course, that's a huge, that's the biggest problem, right? If, if we've got supply chain issues that are going to potentially impact the semiconductor manufacturing equipment, we're talking about, an, you know, a, catastrophic ripple effect where, oh man, you know, if we can't build enough manufacturing equipment, we can't manufacture any chips. And then all of a sudden everybody's screwed. Um, Same thing that the automakers are saying, you know, they're holding up their $50,000 automobiles because some hundred dollar chip is, is not available. The cars are sitting in the factories waiting for these chips. Um, It's a big deal. Yeah. And so what are we doing about it? Well, me and you. Well, us as as Americans, uh, oh, Americans okay. voting, voting American citizens. <laughs> uh, uh, well, so there's a bunch of legislation that's either passed or been proposed recently. One of them called is called the uh, you know the Chips Act. Um, the other is called the Chips for America Act. The other one's called the uh, Facilitating, Ameri- Facilitating American Built Semiconductors Act. Um, and, you know, there's the reasons that these things are coming out. Uh, there was a, something I read, I think it was in Reuters, it said, you know, this, yeah, this, this is a podcast, so the people can't see the funny face that I'm making at you right now. <laughs> um, you know, it, in Reuters, it said something like 20 years ago, 40% of the chips in the world were produced in the States, and now 12% are. And so- How many get, years ago? 20, 20. Huh. 
Yeah. So lots changed in, in two decades. Um, Do you happen to know what percentage is produced in Taiwan? I don't, but I would imagine that it's more than 12 percent. Yes, it's definitely more than 12 percent. But anyway, you know, so there's so there's a, these these pieces of legislation. The Chips for America Act was recently um, approved in, in Congress. And, you know, this FABS Act is sort of up for review. And, and they essentially give tax credits and benefits to um, companies that are either doing or building things you know, for semiconductor manufacturing. One of the problems here, though, is that, and this is why we all hate when the government gets involved in stuff like this, is that, you know, they're getting lobbied. And what they are hearing is we are going to build some, you know, fantastic Jetson, you know, futuristic chips that are going to help us compete with China. And we're going to, you know, space race 2.0, and they're going to be the most advanced things ever. But digging this sort of full circle is obviously they don't understand the reality of the market, which is that, you know, what do you think, probably 80, 85 percent, maybe more of s- silicon semiconductors are on process nodes that are above above 10 nanometers. You're saying Joe Biden doesn't understand the market? No, only Al Gore does. <laughs> <laughs> you're You're right. Um, hmm, it's an interesting one. A lot of the folks who make those um, lower technology devices, those are from fabs that have been acquired because at the time that they were built, they were state of the art. And, right. and the, the process, as the process nodes move down, those fabs become available and, and they get bought by people like Microchip, for example, yep. or TI who's doing analog and power stuff. Um, and there's not a lot of, uh, investment going into those places. So that, that's a tough call. Do you invest in this fab that, you know, that your, your margin is what it is and, and you're, you're not going to raise it unless there's a chip shortage, which you don't really want to happen. Or do you invest in something that's going to be around for 25 years? Well, and I think that that, that's why it's really important that some of these politicians, all of them that listen to the embedded insiders understand um, some of, you know, are, are made to understand some of these things because, you know, let's, let's move beyond, you know, processors, obviously, you know, let's talk about some of the, you know, the, the general analog components or, or, you know, passive components, whatever, you know, you can't, you can't build an electronic system without all of these things. And so if we're going to be taking taxpayer dollars and shuffling it into some of these industries, we damn well better make sure that we're distributed enough that we can support the building, you know, the, all of the components required to build a system rather than just the, you know, hey, we might have the most badass processors in the world that are American made, but we don't have any capacitors, right? But if you're an investor and they come to you and say, hey, we need your billion dollars so we can build this 20 year old technology that has a 4% margin, are you, are you giving your money to those people? Well, and I, I think that, you know, we, we're not a political talk show or, or anything like that. But I think that's, you know, this is the role of, of where government, you know, needs to go to a group of industry advisors who know what they're talking about. And then the government money needs to be used to support that, right? Because, yeah. You the, want the government to build a fab? 
I want the government to continue supporting the development. What does that mean? Packaging, assembly, and test through taxpayer dollars. What does that mean? Supporting. I don't mean no. I don't mean like going being government owned or China or any of that stuff. What do you mean? I mean that the taxpayer dollars that are going to be funneled towards these initiatives need to be distributed distributed to such that we can support all of these different technologies, right? So we need to make sure that some of that money continues to go to the the less sexy components. But in 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 what way? I don't really un- understand where you're going. So specifically, what would you do with the money? Specifically, what I would do with the money is I would, I, let's just take microchip, for example, here, right? If it gets to the point where, hey, I mean, here we, we do this with, with farming all the time, right? You pay farmers not to farm their land, right? So that you can keep the supply and demand in check. And it's the same thing here, sort of in reverse. Look, I understand that there's not money anymore in making capacitors, right? So you need to be incentivized to continue to make capacitors because we need them, right? So we're going to grease your wheels a little bit so that you continue to to make these things that are fundamental to, to the building of electronic systems. Can we get the government to give us money to stop doing webinars? (laughs) <laughs> you know what we need the government to give us money for being consultants on this topic yeah there you go i certainly agree with that one and and for and to kickstart nlls which will be the 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 essential operating system to the future of american tech now associate editor tiara oliver and pat wilbur discuss the shutoff of 3g cellular infrastructure where 3G devices based on this network technology will no longer have a connection. You know, at Hologram, uh, we operate a platform that enables IoT devices to basically automatically switch networks to the best coverage. We provide access to 470 carriers in 200 countries. And what that really does is it enables um, all sorts of different IoT applications to uh, be powered on, connect anywhere in the world. Uh, You know, we're creating connectivity for things like shipping, um, supply chain logistics, smart agriculture, uh, and and the like, micromobility, et cetera. So I guess to start off, um, what is causing major 3G wireless carriers to shut down their 3G networks? Yeah, the the major carriers are um, shutting down or sunsetting, as, as the industry calls it. Uh, there are 3G networks, and you know previously this was happening in 2G uh, not too long ago as well, um, for a few reasons. Um, one is that there is uh, there, there's really just limited supply uh, globally of uh, radio spectrum. So um, the thing with radio spectrum is on a given frequency, only one thing can transmit at a time. Um, there are ways to kind of share spectrum, but Uh, At the end of the day, physics just creates this kind of limit to the supply of spectrum. And so, you know, anyone who's trying to operate a wireless network needs access to spectrum. And as new technologies come out and carriers want to adopt those technologies, they have to reallocate spectrum 
to use those technologies. And you might hear of spectrum auctions and carriers are always trying to acquire more, but the demand for cellular among consumers, IOT, et cetera, you know, only increases and the demand for higher performance, higher capabilities increases. So even though carriers do kind of acquire licenses to more spectrum over time, there's still um, a uh, kind of an artificially smaller supply compared to demand um, that just can't, it can't be created. It's like a natural resource. And so taking existing spectrum that's using legacy systems and being able to reallocate that or refarm that for these newer technologies is, is always an interest. Radio, new radio access technologies um, certainly push the boundaries on speed. Uh, you know, we, we hear about 5G and how um, there are newer, like low latency applications that are unlocked and higher bandwidth or higher throughput applications that are unlocked. That's, of course, a very recent extreme example. But over the history of cellular, you've seen new technologies deliver more speed. Um, a lot of it's all about capacity. So with the um, the, the growth of Internet of Things on cellular, it started to get cellular network operators thinking, okay, are there things I should actually do to optimize my network for IoT? And the answer is yes. And, and in doing that, they've had to uh, adopt new radio access technologies, invent new technologies, really, um, and then adopt those. And that's another example of kind of needing to take existing allocations and say, well, the demand keeps going up faster than I can add more spectrum. So how can I use the spectrum I already have more efficiently? A lot of times that is to sunset an older radio access technology and migrate to, to uh, newer technologies that manage that more efficiently. Um, would you say that this transition is occurring within other mobile networks as well, such as um, 4G? And if so, why? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting about 4G is starting right around the time when we were um, designing and building fourth generation networks in the industry, uh, this concept of LTE or long-term evolution was developed. The, the objective was to uh, deploy networks where, whenever possible where you could, you could basically push an update to that network and adjust how that network allocates spectrum and, 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 and adapt it to new um, needs, hence the evolution in LTE. Uh, 4G and LTE are not the same term, but they're just often used interchangeably. So basically suffice it to say, as we, as we adopted fourth generation networks, we also adopted the concept of a long-term evolution network. And so one of the examples of that is as IoT uh, consumption started growing on cellular. Many of those uh, initially, you know, many IoT devices were using 2G, 3G uh, in the early, earlier days of cellular. Um, 4G is rolling out, had, has already been rolled out for consumers, but it was starting to be rolled out for a, an upgrade path for IoT devices. And one of the approaches to actually reconfiguring the existing 4G network to better accommodate um, uh, IoT devices was to roll out a, essentially a software update to towers to enable a brand new radio access technology. 
um, uh, two of them actually, NBIOT or CAT NB1 and CAT M1. And so both of these are low power wide area network technologies. They, they're really good technology for many like 2G, 3G devices to migrate to um, when, when um, you know, some of those legacy devices were going to be upgraded for future proofing them against sunsets and things like that, kind of refarming some of the LTE or 4G spectrum is carriers said, well, we're going to sunset 2G and 3G. Not all devices that are using 2G and 3G for IoT applications need a lot of throughput, uh, a lot of like high speed. Some of them are sensor applications, asset tracking, things that just send little bursts of data. So they created or carved out or refarmed, if you will, a little sliver in their LTE and 4G bands for CAT M1 and CAT NB1 or NBIOT as it's sometimes called. And they use that to create kind of a purpose-built section of their of their spectrum for IoT. How will this shutdown or transition affect the IoT devices that are currently connected to 3G networks? There are existing devices uh, out there that are deployed that are using technology. So, you know, it's, it's this thing where when you deploy a new technology, you a new radio access technology, you generally have that exist in an overlapping timeline with the older technologies because you still have to support devices that are in the field. But then over time, <clears throat> as new devices are being released supporting the newer technologies, the number of devices that only support the older technologies decreases. So over time, carriers start to refarm that spectrum and shift it from the older technologies to, to newer technologies. There, there are a variety of reasons why they might still be connected to 3G networks. The first one is they might just simply not support 4G or 5G. And so if it's a device that's been in the field for many years, might only support 2G and 3G, and they just simply don't support 4G or 5G. And so for those devices, um, actually replacing the modem in them, and if the modem's soldered onto a circuit board, actually replacing maybe the device uh, is necessary in order to, to, to support the end customer into a post-3G world, um, because there just simply won't be a radio access technology that those devices can connect to. So the sunsets have been, you know, things that uh, dates that have been that carriers have tried to announce well in advance. Um, they've done this a, a long time after 4G technologies already had existed to give um, manufacturers of new products the ability to adopt newer technologies, etc. But yeah, the one of the main reasons and the obvious reasons of why a 3G device might still be connected to 3G is it only supports 3G and those will just lose connectivity. So speaking of the IoT devices still connected to 3G, how will this transition affect the users of 3G and what can they do about it? You know, the, the customer buys a product to solve some problem or to do something. They're not, they're not the OEM. They're not the one who manufactured that device. They might not really be very familiar with the internals, so unfortunately, um, you know, there, there probably are customers, end users 
who are unaware that they have a device that's, that's going to lose connectivity. That's very unfortunate. Um, the flip side of that, though, is that most um, OEMs who are, you know, have, are well, well in contact with their end customers um, have been working to uh, retrofit or replace hardware for a while. You know, some companies are managing this, this transition for their customers by kind of hand-holding or helping their customers along the way. And that's great. So it's not all doom and gloom. It kind of depends upon uh, if, that, if that end user, the end customer has, a, has someone who's knowledgeable to help guide them through this transition and, and if they're even aware. So how can we streamline this network transition so that the devices and the users who are using them or who are using less advanced networks can be connected or still be connected um, to new ones at a low cost? I, I think the best thing is to ask questions. Um, I think the consumer or the end user should ask their IoT vendor, is this going to work after the 3G sunset? And they should ask that question, even if it's a 4G device, like, is there anything I need to do in order to ensure it continues to work? And then the same thing for the OEM who builds IoT connected products, they should contact their modem manufacturer and should ask the same question. When the 3G sunset occurs, is there anything that needs to be done to, um, or any configuration considerations, anything like that, that I need to be aware of in order to continue to support cellular connectivity over 4G in the absence of a 3G network? So they should ask questions. And then, you know, I think that bubbles up to the underlying IoT cellular provider too. Um, so an OEM or a customer can ask their cellular provider. So these, I mean, these have been kind of extended and delayed on a number of networks a few times. Um, you know, even Verizon discontinued their 2G network a long time ago. And well, they still had like certain customers that uh, were still probably sec half secretly using it um, as part of like them finishing out contracts and everything. So what does Hologram offer to help overcome this challenge? Not only do we provide connectivity on all radio access technologies that we can, uh, so basically all radio access technologies um, as they come out, uh, almost as quickly as they come out as, as partners of ours adopt them. So not only do we provide that, which is useful because if you want to release a product and future-proof it, and your modem supports the newest technology, you should be able to start using that as soon as it's available in your area. But we also have a lot of expertise on the uh, low-level network level, um, on the low-level modem configuration level. So our customers have worked with us, uh, and we've been able to perform diagnostics, like tower-level diagnostics, to investigate you know, are there any anti-patterns that we can detect? Um, so bad patterns that we can detect that, um, that suggests that there could be a problem with transition, transitioning the device. Uh, we're able to provide some of those firmware and device configuration recommendations based on our expertise. So in general, Hologram provides connectivity, but because it's, it's very, you know, 
always improve. It, it's very open and it's always improving. Always, uh, we're always adding new radio access technologies with the same SIM card um, that you have deployed. Customers tend to have a an ease of being able to, um, you know, migrate to a new technology, and then we have the expertise to to support them through that. Um, so that's that's especially related to the 3G sunset. Um, that's that's essentially what Hologram's been doing. Now, assistant editor Taryn Ingmark dives into the AI and machine learning, real-time containers, and a revolutionary approach to security integration to make sure you have all the tools you need to succeed in Industry 4.0 and beyond. Industry 4.0 has been in the works for more than a decade, but it's finally reaching critical mass. OT professionals are preparing to safely and securely ramp up industrial digitization initiatives, and there's a range of new, probably unfamiliar technologies that they have to become acquainted with to have a shot at success. So, we're going to go over the top three. Number one is industrial AI and machine learning. When Industry 4.0 was conceptualized by the German government back in 2011, artificial intelligence and machine learning were still firmly in the domain of research, development, academia, and sci-fi. Fast forward 11 years, and they're at the center of current and future automation strategies everywhere. AI and machine learning are becoming widespread in manufacturing systems that range from quality inspection systems equipped with computer vision algorithms, all the way to plant and company-wide analytics engines that drive productivity, efficiency, and cost optimizations. Today, even moderately sophisticated machine learning tech can account for the physical operating characteristics of a machine's components, like heat, vibration, oscillation, speed to determine a piece of equipment's mean time to failure and schedule maintenance before that happens. These analyses can even include AI-powered cyber threat monitoring and prevention to help safeguard high-value industrial assets. For example, right now, security teams are using simulation engines like Wind River Simix to find vulnerabilities in their systems and deploying virtual targets as honeypots to attract hackers. After studying these vulnerabilities and attack procedures, the security professionals can feed different threat indicators into AI models that will continuously monitor real systems for attack signatures and act before any resources get lost or damaged. In short, AI and machine learning are helping to solve problems before they exist, and they'll continue to evolve during the transitions to Industry 4.0 and later Industry 5.0, where technologies like cobots are being positioned as universal replacements for human factory workers. The second technology we're talking about today is going to revolve around real-time containers. Since the inception of factory automation, the electronics that power it have been governed by the pillars of safety, security, reliability, and determinism. But enterprise technologies like AI and ML, IP-based networking, and the cloud being introduced to these environments are none of those things. So how can IT and OT exist in the same plant or even in the same system, much less the same subsystem, without process interference that can result in system faults or failures? In a lot of cases, the answer is virtualization, which partitions system resources so that each process believes it's running entirely on its own system. There are plenty of types of virtualization and technologies that support it, ranging from hardware virtualization of multi-core chipsets to hypervisors that create strict partitions between different cores and memory regions. Another is OS virtualization, where containers are a leading solution. 
Container Technology bundles all of an application's services into an ultra-portable package. Each container separates its contents from the rest of the system, which ensures that different system operations don't interfere with each other, and also provides software isolation that's crucial to modern electronic device security principles. Also, containers are agnostic to the infrastructure they're deployed on. Of course, being born of the enterprise and data center, agnostic historically refers to Windows or Linux OSs on an x86 server. Now, real-time container technologies are coming to market that can run on top of Windows or Linux distributions in embedded environments, but also on top of real-time OSs. This is a game-changer for OT Edge System Intelligence because it enables IoT DevOps deployment architectures built around continuous software updating and delivery. For our third and final must-know technology, we're going to dive into DevSecOps. Industry 4.0, for the first time in a lot of automation use cases, opens endpoints and their vulnerabilities to networks and, by extension, cyber threats. This makes endpoint security one of the biggest concerns for industrial automation companies whose data and physical assets are often either extremely valuable, potentially harmful, or both. Take the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, for example. Hackers found a leaked VPN password on the dark web that provided access to Colonial Pipeline servers and subsequently locked the company out of its own electronic systems before demanding cryptocurrency. Because cyber threats evolve much faster than the traditionally set-and-forget world of industrial automation technology, development, security, and operational engineering methodologies must change. This is exactly where DevSecOps shines. DevSecOps is an approach to automation and platform design that integrates security as a vital step in every phase of the software development lifecycle, instead of just during the end stages of development as is customary in traditional engineering workflows. While it can take longer and cost more to develop securely upfront, it saves exponentially more time and money to identify bugs early in the lifecycle. According to IBM, fixing bugs found during the testing phase of software development can cost companies up to 15 times more than if they had identified it in the design phase. A DevSecOps approach represents a change from completely air-gapping systems from external networks, but with the opportunities of Industry 4.0 applying pressure to connect the entire industrial infrastructure, you might not really have a choice anymore. Industry 4.0 has been in the works for over a decade now. Some industrial facilities are and have been thriving in it, and some are still catching up. But time waits for no one. If you can familiarize yourself with these three technologies, you can make your Industry 4.0 implementations a success and get well on your way to Industry 5.0. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For more daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website at embeddedcomputing.com.